kind of start thinking about the Bible, I want us to um, I want to throw a little situation at you, a little situation that could happen. Just imagine that you're you're with a friend. Perhaps you're out. Hopefully, everyone can imagine you know being with a friend. Uh, you, you're out having a milkshake or a coffee or a coke, something like that. And you, you just tell your friend something that's happened during the week. Uh, you might have been a little bit embarrassed by it, you, but you thought it was good to tell them. Uh, you knew what you did wasn't quite right, uh, but it, it kind of felt good to tell your friend uh, this thing that you'd done. And all of a sudden your friend turns to you and says, I think you need to read the Bible with me. What's your gut reaction when someone says something like that? I think you should read the Bible. Turn to your friend, uh, have a chat about that. I'm going to get this little thing. When someone says to you something like, I really think you need to read the Bible, how do you feel? What's your gut reaction? I'll give you a minute, have a chat, find the person next to you. Well, if you'd like to just end that little conversation. I don't know how you went with that. Maybe it was a little bit confusing. Um, but I wonder if if when you kind of thought about what the Bible was, I wonder if you had any thoughts along the lines of the Bible reading that we just had. Uh, this is just part of the Bible reading. I wonder if, if you kind of went, oh, the Bible, it's like this. It's the law of the Lord. It will revive my soul. Uh, if, I, if I hear the, the precepts of the Lord, the Bible, uh, it will make my heart rejoice. I wonder if that's how you felt. Uh, I wonder if when your friend turned to you and said, I think you really need to read the Bible, uh, you were like that last couple of lines where it says, yes, more to be desired are they than gold, sweeter than the honey, drippings of honeycomb coming out. Is that your gut feel on the Bible? Is that kind of what you think about when you just look at this book or someone tells you maybe you should read it? You just want to kind of drink it in like honey dripping out of honeycomb. You know, you kind of just want to get all the goodness out of it. I don't know if you've ever kind of seen real honeycomb in a tree. Um, often it's very dangerous to try to get it out because there's bees and things like that. But just imagine it's just kind of dripping out. You kind of stick your head on it and just... It'd be great, right? Maybe. It'd be sticky and stuff. That'd be weird. But that's not often our reaction to the Bible, is it? Uh, when we think about this book, uh, I think we often have one of two two views when we think about the Bible. The first one... I think is this, we think about that it's a book of rules. Uh, we think maybe the Bible is just a, a list of things, you know, this kind of list that we know that we probably can't match up to, all these kind of thou shalt nots, maybe that's your view of the Bible, um, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not sleep with thy girlfriend, thou shalt not keep looking at cat videos during lectures, <laughs> whatever it is. And I, and I posted some video the other day, and it was ten hours of a unicorn. Was it a unicorn running on a rainbow? <laughs> Thou shalt not watch ten hours because that is a waste of your life. I'm telling you right now. What if that's your view of the Bible? I think for many of us, I actually, I actually fear that that's our view of the Bible. That we just think that it's a list of rules that kind of will stop us having any fun in life. Um, while the Bible certainly does have rules in it, uh, the, the Bible does have instructions. They're actually good for us. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 19. The instructions are good. 
Uh, but rules aren't really what the Bible is all about. Uh, the Bible isn't just a list of rules. Now you open up the Bible, someone tell me, you open up the Bible to a random page, what do you think you're most likely going to get? What's going to be in front of you? What do you reckon? A psalm. Possibly a psalm? Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't quite what I was going for. Often it's, often it's a story, isn't it? It's a story. You know, 70% of the Bible is narrative, it's story. Uh, that's, that's a fair chunk. Uh, the Bible, it's actually, it's a story. It's a story of God acting in history. Uh, that's primarily what the Bible is. It's the story about God. It's his story. But I think sometimes we actually fall into a different camp, a different trap, and we actually think the Bible isn't just one big story about God. We just think it's maybe little stories about people that maybe we should be like, uh, that it's a, a book full of role models. You know, that. sorry, I just lost my, something went dry in my throat then. Um, that it's a list of role models, people that maybe we could aspire to be like. I don't know if anyone's ever said something to you like, like this. Maybe they've said, oh, if only you had faith like Abraham. Or, you know, if only you were a leader like Joshua. Or maybe, why don't you try to pray like Daniel? You know, what happens when you have that kind of idea? Uh, the Bible just becomes this little list of stories about people, right? These role models that you might find in the Old Testament and the New. Um, and while the Bible does have these stories in them, it does have these people in them, when you actually look at them, when you do a bit more reading than just maybe their, their best moments, you notice that most of these people are just like us, aren't they? Uh, most of those people in the Bible, they make mistakes. Uh, they stuff up. They're, they get afraid. They run away from God. They do all sorts of things. Sometimes they're mean and cruel. Uh, they're not really role models. That's not what they're there for. Uh, no, these people, they're actually just people that help tell the story of God. Uh, because that's ultimately what the Bible is. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the Bible, it's not about rules. It's not about role models. No, the Bible is a rescue story. It's God's rescue story. The Bible is a story of how God sent his son Jesus to rescue us. It's God's word about his son. And when you just kind of step back and you see the Bible as one story, what you actually notice is that it's a wonderful story. Uh, it's, it's a story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to reclaim his lost treasure. Uh, it's, it's a story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, leaves his throne, he leaves everything behind to rescue the one that he loves. That's what the Bible is like. It's kind of actually like a fairy tale. It's this wonderful story, but the most wonderful thing about it is that it's not a fairy tale. It's actually true. It actually happened in real history. Uh, it's the most wonderful story, and it's true. It's God's story about how he relates to his people, about how he wants to rescue his children. But many people, uh, maybe you're here tonight, maybe you've come along because you saw the flyer and you thought, I'm going to pin you guys on this. That's okay, good. Come along, ask questions. I, I want people to come along and ask questions. We have question time after this. Uh, write down questions as we go along. Uh, many people will, will want to ask questions about the Bible, maybe about the historicity of the Bible. 
Uh, can you trust this book that was written so long ago? Uh, how can we be sure that what, what is in here is actually what the original writers wrote down? Uh, what is it that makes that book any different from any other holy book? Maybe there's some of the questions that you have about the Bible. So what we're going to do tonight, uh, we're not really going to do what we often do, which is open up a passage of Scripture and see what God's saying to us there. Now we're actually going to um, try to answer some of those big questions, some of the, the popular questions that get thrown at the Bible. Uh, I've named about eight of them, uh, and so we'll have a crack at working through them. But before we do that, I just want us just to get a little bit oriented as to what the Bible is in itself. Uh, the Bible, apart from being the world's most translated, the world's most produced, the world's most bought book on the face of the earth, uh, what it is, uh, when you kind of break it down, is it's kind of like this. That's clip art. I don't know if you love clip art, but there you go. It's a clip art Bible. Uh, it's a collection of 66 individual books. Uh, it's divided into two main sections. Uh, the first is called the Old Testament. There's 39 books uh, in the Old Testament. And those 39 books actually tell the story of how God created the world. God created the world. He set it up. He put people in it. Uh, but then the people said, no, we don't want you, God. We don't want you to be part of our life. Uh, we want to try and run life our own way, kind of like what we do. Uh, but then it goes on. It doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3 when the people reject God. Uh, the rest of the Old Testament is actually about God doing something to rescue his people from their plight. Uh, he's trying to, he says that he's, he focuses in on one person called Abraham. Uh, he gives Abraham these promises that one of his descendants will be a king who will bless the whole world, who will actually overcome this problem of death and sin and suffering that we have. And so the whole of the Old Testament, Abraham kind of has a family and they turn into Israel and they have good kings and bad kings and all that sort of stuff. But the whole Old Testament is actually this story of God bringing those promises to Abraham to be true. The problem is you get to the end of the Old Testament and you see that they're still waiting for a good king. They're still waiting for a king who will solve their problem of death and sin and suffering. Uh, so when you get to the New Testament... Uh, with its 27 books, what the New Testament actually does is it fulfills those longings or those prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh, it introduces you to a baby, a little baby called Jesus, a little baby who grows up, who does remarkable things, uh, and ultimately he becomes a king, but not the kind of king that you might think he would be like. Uh, he gets crowned with thorns, as he dies on a cross. And ultimately, that Jesus is the one who solves the problem of death, of suffering. The Bible talks about him. The New Testament talks about his promised return, how one day he will come back. And it gives a lot of instruction on how God's people are to live now as they live in light of Jesus' return. So that's the Bible. That's kind of an overview of the whole story. I don't know if you can hold all that in your mind. There's a lot there. But these things, they're actually written down as one story. They're not heaps of little stories. They're, they're lots of little stories that tell one big story. 
And they've been written down for a reason. Uh, they've been preserved and they've been passed down from generation to generation uh, for a reason. The reason is given in Psalm 102. Psalm 102 says this. It says these words were written for future generations. Why? So that a people not yet born, that's us, may praise the Lord. Now, the Bible was written, it was preserved, it was passed down through the generations for a reason, for a purpose. It was written so that we, we who weren't around when God created the world, are we who weren't there at Mount Sinai when Moses got the Ten Commandments, are we who weren't there when Jesus lived and did his miracles and died, these things were all written down for us who were born just a bit later on in time so that we could actually know what happened, so we could enter into the experience of how God related to people in history. Uh, God's story has been written down in words so that we can actually know God, so that people like you and me can, can hear the story so we can be kind of caught up in that experience of what other people had but ultimately so that we could know God and trust him. We can know him in his word and therefore we can trust him. Uh, It actually helps us to obey him and glorify him. That's the purpose of the Bible, that we might get so kind of caught up in this amazing story that we would begin to live a life of praise, live a life for God, who's the main character. Uh, that's the purpose of the Bible, uh, to do that. You know when you read a book and you just really get caught up in it? I don't know if you've, I don't know if many people read novels these days. Some people do, some people love novels. The last, this is going to sound a little bit weird on a night, you know, where we're talking about the, the trustworthiness of the Bible, but the last novel that I really got wrapped up in was The Da Vinci Code. Um, <laughs> sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it? It is a well-written book, well-written fiction book, I might say. Um, and it claims to be fiction. But I read that book and I just couldn't put it down. I got so caught up in it. Uh, the Bible's like that. It's, it's meant to be read so that we experience it, so we get caught up in it, so we actually fall in love with the main character and get to know him and live for him. But you might be a little bit sceptical about that. You might be sitting there thinking, yeah, well, it might be a nice story, Steve. It might be a good fairy tale, perhaps. But you can't really trust it as God's word, can you? As the God who created the universe, is it really what he says, what he speaks? Uh, Well, if that's you, um, can I encourage you for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to work through these eight different uh, kind of questions, these reasons that come out. Um, Would you have an open mind as we we think about this? Try not to be too sceptical and then just see kind of as the weight of evidence falls as we go along. Uh, so let's let's get into it. Uh, historical questions. The first one, and you'll find them on your sheet. The first one is this: uh, the Bible. It's not a experience, the private experience of one man at one time. Some people will say that, you know, they'll ask the question. They say, "Didn't someone just write the Bible? Didn't they just make it up?" I was chatting to Nick earlier tonight, and he said, "You know, the best way to get rich is to start a religion." Uh, and, you know, that, that might have proved true for some people. Best way to get rich is start a religion. Is that what the Bible is? Did someone just sit down, write it, and try to make a bit of profit on the side? 
Now, what, what actually makes the Bible stand out from most of the other holy books is that it's not the product of one wise man. Uh, it's not like, like that of Confucius or of Buddha. Uh, no, it's not, it's not that at all. The, the, um, the Quran, for instance, uh, is written by one guy, Muhammad. Uh, he had, he had some experience, he wrote it down. G'day, come on in. Welcome. Uh, Joseph Smith, for instance, who, who wrote the Book of Mormon, uh, he talks about he had one experience. Uh, and so, so the Bible actually doesn't say that. Uh, the Bible actually says that God inspired men from all different time, times and ages to write his words down, uh, to write his story. So when you come to the Bible, it's written by so many different people, 40 different authors, uh, that what you find is that all your eggs aren't in the one basket. Uh, one guy just didn't do it uh, to try and deceive the world with this great story. Uh, this leads us into our second point. Um, the human authors of the Bible, they actually lived too far apart for there to be collusion. Uh, so you might have thought, well, if one guy didn't write it, then maybe it was a group of guys and they went into a room and they wrote it, because you know, it's a pretty good book, it's pretty long, one guy couldn't put it all together by himself. So did all the authors get together and write it themselves? Well, no. The time frame of when it was written was actually far too long. Uh, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year period. Uh, it was written by over 40 different people in over 40 different generations. Uh, you can't have, because of that timeline, you can't have collusion. Most of the writers were dead before the other writers were alive. So they couldn't have come into one room like a bunch of kind of advertising, you know, whiz kids who have just done their, I don't know, what's a... Can you have a BA in marketing or something like that? Josh, you might know. Yeah. You know, say you've just, you've just done your three years in marketing and, you know, you think, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to write a religion. Let's all get in the, let's all get in a room and we'll, we'll do this together. No, they couldn't have done that. Uh, the time frame is just too great, uh, for them to walk into a room and come out with a new religion. Uh, it's not, it's not possible. Uh, but, but one of the other reasons why this is so important uh, is because when you actually read the Old Testament and you see that it is one story, uh, when you read the Old Testament, uh, there's around 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, 300 predictions uh, of this coming king, of Jesus. They all look forward to Jesus. Uh, and they're scattered throughout the whole book. Uh, 300 different prophecies. Just wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, can we do that in question time? Yeah, that's a good question. We'll touch on that a little bit. Um, yeah, and the Old Testament in particular uh, is a complex one. Um, yeah, but is that right? Thanks, Olivia. What we want to see is that there was over 300 different prophecies and they all actually point forward to Jesus. They're scattered throughout the whole Old Testament. Uh, and so you've got all these different authors, all these different writers, but they actually all tell a very similar story. Uh, and when you kind of step back and you see that all these different authors at all these different times are telling a very similar story, it kind of makes you step back and say, wow, uh, something's going on behind the scenes here. Uh, someone's maybe controlling it. Uh, uh, what, what one of the apostles, what Peter says, is that God was actually behind it. 
Uh, this is actually God's word written by human hands. That's what the Bible is. It's God's word written by human hands. 2 Peter 1 says this, No prophecy of scripture comes from man's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, you see, he has woven it together. Uh, Men spoke God's words. They didn't, they couldn't have just made it all up. The story is too well told. Thirdly, uh, the Bible is written by people from all different types of backgrounds. Uh, It wasn't just scholars, it wasn't just the religious guys who wrote the Bible. Uh, No, there's a real mixture of people. There's kings, there's tax collectors, there's shepherds, there's fishermen, there's peasants. Uh, This book isn't the result of one class of people. It's not just the religious guys. No, in fact, when you look at the Bible, probably the only real religious guy who wrote it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, It's not an insider's job, if I can put it that way. Uh, Fourthly, uh, the Bible is not trapped in one culture and in one language. Uh, The Bible was actually originally written in over three continents, uh, in Europe, where Paul wrote his letters, in Asia, where most of the Bible was written, in the Middle East, uh, and also some in Africa, was written by Moses in Egypt. Uh, It was written in three different languages, the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. Does anyone know the other language? Aramaic, yeah, the second half of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Uh, Furthermore, there's different styles in the Bible. Uh, It contains laws and history, it's got poetry, it's got narrative, it's got parables. There's biographies and prophecies and visions. There's all this kind of huge range of literature in the Bible and what that kind of shows us is that this is the result of real people living in real history, having real experiences. Uh, my point in saying these four points is simply this. It is that the integrity of the Bible is that it is written by so many different people, by so many different uh, places, in different languages, in different time slots, different concepts, and yet, throughout all of that, it is one unfolding story from start to finish. Uh, it's incredible. It's one story. It goes from creation at the beginning with the fall through to a new creation at the end with Jesus in the centre, fulfilling all those prophecies. It's an amazing story. And it holds together one unfolding story of God's plans for the world. And friends, what I want to go on now to say is that this story, it's not isolated from history. Uh, The Bible records events uh, that have happened in real times and real places. Uh, So this gives us further proof, further evidence uh, that the Bible really does weigh up. Uh, you can cross-check the history of the Bible. It lines up. They give you names and dates and times and places. Uh, there is a huge amount of external evidence that contributes to us being able to put our trust in the Bible. Uh, the events and the history of the Bible, they take place in real time. Some of the places you might know very well Uh, Places like Jerusalem or Jericho, places like Mount Carmel or Rome or Athens, these places we know. Uh, The list goes on. You can catch a plane. You can actually go and visit those places. Uh, You can pull out a map. You can see 
where Jesus lived, where Jesus walked. Jesus was born in a real town called Bethlehem. He lived in a real town called Nazareth. Uh, He died in a real city called Jerusalem. Uh, You can go there. You can walk there. You can check it out. Uh, My brother, uh, he he went on a historical Bible tour. That's not a picture of my brother. That's a picture (laughs) of Lake Galilee that my brother took uh, when he went there. This is where Jesus taught. Obviously, there wasn't skyscrapers at the time uh, because Jesus was there 2,000 years ago. Uh, But this is my brother and his wife and another girl and another guy who I don't know. Um, And they're in Hezekiah's Tunnel. Uh, Hezekiah's Tunnel is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 20. It's a tunnel which runs underneath Jerusalem. For many years they thought it was lost. People were saying the Bible isn't true because they can't find Hezekiah's Tunnel. Well, my brother found it. No, he didn't. He just went there. Um, uh, This is my brother and his wife. They're floating in the Dead Sea, which is mentioned a number of times in the Bible. They do have clothes on. <laughs> and my brother wears terrible glasses, but that's a different, that's a different story. I'll leave that up for a little while. Um, what I want to say with that is that the Bible is not like the Lord of the Rings. Uh, you can, you might like the Lord of the Rings, you might not. Um, but in the Lord of the Rings, there's a place called Middle Earth. Uh, there's people called the Hobbits. Uh, there's a guy called Gandalf. Problem is, you can't go to Middle Earth. Uh, you can't go and hang out with the hobbits because they don't exist. I'm sorry if you thought you could. Um, the Lord of the Rings is fiction. It's made up. Uh, the places are not real. The times are not real. But the Bible is. It's set in history. Real places. Real times. Sixthly, uh, and this is important, uh, what we have in the Gospels, in the, the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is actually eyewitness testimony. Uh, the apostles, when they wrote down what they, had, what they saw, uh, they wrote down what they saw of Jesus. Eyewitness testimony. They were there. Uh, they heard him speak. They saw him do wonders. They touched his risen body. And they wrote it down to record it. Uh, Luke, one of the Gospel writers, uh, he tells us how he carefully investigated everything that was written down. Uh, he w- Luke, for instance, would have gone and interviewed Mary and Joseph to find out exactly what happened uh, with regard to Jesus' birth. Um, Luke went and checked out other people. He would have understood and talk to eyewitnesses, and then he put his gospel together. Uh, but it's not just Luke. There's not just one gospel. There's not just one eyewitness testimony. There's actually four of them, four different accounts, four different eyewitness accounts. And when you see that four different eyewitness accounts all tell the same story, it verifies each other. If there was just one, then you go, well, maybe he made it up. But if there's four that all tell the same story, then that is good evidence of truth. It makes it credible. Uh, these eyewitness accounts, also, they were recorded and written down during the lifetime of those who were there at the event. Uh, they weren't written 300 years afterwards. Uh, they were written during the time when people who might have read one of the Gospels, one of the biographies of Jesus, they could have read it and gone, hang on, no, I was there and that didn't happen that way. 
uh, people could have confirmed or unconfirmed what had been written, what had been said. Uh, it's not like as though everyone else had died by the time the Gospels were published and written and circulating. Uh, the last of them, uh, John's Gospel, was written by, eight, by the time AD 90, uh, still within the living memory of those who would have been there and seen and heard Jesus. See, friends, we don't take, for instance, the Quran's view of Jesus. Of, of Jesus. Uh, the Quran, written by Muhammad, uh, Muhammad who lived 600 years after Jesus, he writes that Jesus wasn't the Son of God. He writes that Jesus didn't die on a cross. And there's your choice, isn't it? Uh, are you going to believe someone who lived 600 years after the event, who lived in a different town, in a different city, or are you going to believe the accounts of people who were there, who wrote within the time frame of the living memory of those who could have checked it out? There's your choice. Uh, if you'd like to think about the Gospels in particular more, um, we've got this little booklet. There's a stack of them up the back. It's called Can We Trust What the Gospels Say About Jesus? It's written by a friend of mine, um, and I think it's very good. Uh, I can't say everything because I would be here for two hours to talk about just the Gospels. Um, but do grab one of them. Everything up the back's free, uh, apart from the rice cooker. Yeah, don't take the rice cooker. Everything else is free, so take. So do take that if you want to think more about the Gospels. Um, seventh, and I know um, we've been going for a while, but seventh, textual evidence. Now, textual evidence assures us that what we have in our hands today is an actual reflection of what was originally written. Uh, by those original authors. Uh, when you do the research, when you look into the numbers of the early Christian manuscripts that we have, what you learn is that there, we can actually have certainty about the text that we have in our New Testament. Uh, most of you, I assume, would believe Plato's writings. You would have heard something of Plato. You'd kind of go, oh yeah, Plato. Yeah, he wrote some stuff. That was good. Um, Plato wrote in 428 BC, he wrote a number of things. Uh, the earliest copy of a writing of Plato that we have is 1,200 years after he wrote, and there are seven copies. 1,200 years after he wrote, seven copies, and most of us go, oh yeah, Plato, that's good, take it as fact. Uh, Herodotus, born in 480 BC, uh, you might have studied him in your year 12 history. Uh, the earliest work that we have of Herodotus is 1,300 years after the fact after he wrote. Uh, that's the earliest copy we've got. We've got eight copies of that. Um, the New Testament, which you've got in your Bibles, in your hands, was written in the first century. And we've got copies written well within a 100 years of the originals. A 100-year time gap. We don't have any of the originals. That's okay. We don't have any of the originals. But what we have is we have a huge number of manuscripts written in those early centuries. 5,600 manuscripts, in fact written within the first 300 years of the events. That is a huge number. The reason we have so many is because someone like Paul would send a letter to a church and the church would um, read it as the word of God, uh, written by an apostle, and then they would copy it and then send it uh, to another church so that all the letters, the Gospels and the letters in the New Testament, so they could be circulated throughout all the Christians in that new area. So we have so many copies, 5,600 manuscripts. 
Uh, the sheer amount of them is astounding, isn't it? Compared to what we have with people like Plato and Herodotus. Uh, even better, though, is the fact that there is very, very small amount of difference in these manuscripts. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that could happen when you have so many people copying so many different things is that people would be just kind of, you know, if I was copying it, I would make mistakes. I would kind of rush it and, and do things like that. Uh, the Bible writers, they, in the New Testament, in the early church, they knew that this was the word of God, written by one of God's apostles, appointed by Jesus. And so they took very good care to copy it word for word, sentence for sentence, paragraph for paragraph, check it over and over. Uh, so good, in fact, that when you look at the 5,600 manuscripts we have, the differences that we have is a half of 1%. That's the differences, a half of 1%. Uh, most of the differences are spelling differences. Uh, some of the differences, some of the bigger ones, are things like uh, people might say, and Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, but other manuscripts might have, and Jesus talked about the kingdom. We've just lost the words of God off the end. doesn't really make that much difference, does it? They're the kind of differences that actually contribute to the 0.5% difference that we have. Uh, no doctrine or teaching in the New Testament is in any way undermined by the differences that we have. 99.5% uh, of manuscripts say exactly the same thing. And that gives us great confidence, doesn't it? Gives us great confidence that this, what we have in our hands, is an actual reflection, it's translated, but it's an actual reflection of what was originally written. Finally, in this area, uh, some people uh, will say that the church has just determined uh, what books we read and what books we don't. Uh, you might say, why is it that Catholics uh, seem to have more books in their Bible than Protestants? Uh, and that's a good question. Uh, Protestants and Catholics have the same amount of books in the New Testament, uh, but there's an extra 14 books that Catholics have are situated between the Old and the New. Does anyone know what they're called? The, the Apocrypha. Yep, so Maccabees is one of them. Uh, there's, there's books in there like Tobit, Judith. Uh, if you go to a Catholic wedding, you might hear from the book of Tobit being read. Uh, there's one and two Maccabees, Prayer of Manasseh. Uh, these books in the Apocrypha, they were all written... Uh, from the year 380 BC up until the time of Jesus. Uh, so they were written after Malachi, where the Old Testament ends, and before the New Testament ends. So the, the Bible, the, the, the Protestant Bible, has a 400-year gap of silence, and the Apocrypha kind of fits in that space. Um, why is it that Protestants don't have the Apocrypha in their Bibles? Uh, well, there's two main reasons for that. Uh, the first one is this. Uh, the Apocrypha was never actually included in the 39 books of the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament. So when Jesus was around, there was an accepted uh, Old Testament by the, that the Jews had of the day, 39 books. Jesus calls them the Law, the Prophets and the Psalms. Uh, and Paul writes, very interestingly I think, in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, he wrote, writes that the Jews had been entrusted with the very words of God. That's the words of Paul. So you have to ask the question, if it's not in the Jewish Bible, then should the Apocrypha actually have a place 
in our Bible? Is it actually really the Word of God? But secondly, and I think this is more to the point, uh, is that when you actually look at the New Testament, what Jesus says, what the apostles say, what they write, um, none of them ever actually quote anything out of the Apocrypha as being the Word of God. There's no quotations from the Apocrypha in the New Testament. And I think that says something to us, um, because there's over 260 quotations from the Old Testament in the New, but none of them are from the collection of apocryphal books. Uh, and so it's for those couple of reasons that I think uh, we conclude that we can read those books, they're interesting, uh, but they're just not recognised as the Word of God. The New Testament books, as you might know, uh, most of them have been included in the Bible because they were written by the apostles, who are eyewitnesses of Jesus. Uh, there are five books written by people who weren't eyewitnesses, who weren't apostles, people like Luke and Jude. Uh, but those books, the ones written by Luke and Jude, uh, they've been included because those guys were actually associated with the apostles. Uh, Luke was Paul's doctor, for instance. He travelled with him. Uh, Jude was Jesus' brother. Uh, they knew the apostles, and so they were in the time of the apostles. They weren't written heaps after, but, and they actually agree with everything that the apostles write. The so-called Gospel of Thomas, or Judas, or Peter, you might have heard of those. They're all actually later. They're second century documents. Uh, those Gospels... Uh, have been written after the apostles have died, and so they don't have the authorization of the apostles. So they're not classed as the word of God. Well, I've been saying a lot. I've been talking for a while. Uh, but what I want to say in conclusion is that at the end of the day, I can give you long lists like this, lots of reasons why I think this Bible is a credible piece of history. Uh, I think it's a well-written piece of literature. It's a great story. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing that will persuade you that this really is the Word of God and that it's worth trusting with your life. Uh, and that thing is a person. That's the person who's the main character of the story. Uh, the person who's right at the centre, Jesus. So I want to say that it's only actually when you get to know Jesus in his Word that you will be persuaded that this book really is trustworthy, that it really is God speaking into your very life, uh, that it's God revealing himself to you, that it's God inviting you into his story. You don't need to believe the, the Bible, you don't need to believe in Jesus in order to start reading the Bible. Uh, if you're someone uh, who doesn't believe in God, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, that's okay. Can I encourage you, if that, if that is you, to actually have a go at reading the Bible. Pick up a gospel and read through it and see who this Jesus guy is. Check him out. Because I guarantee you that if you ask God to reveal himself to you, then you will be persuaded that there is something remarkable about Jesus. That he really is God in the flesh. That he really shows us that God loves us because he came and died for us to rescue us. So the Bible is it's not just a list of rules, it's not a collection of role models. No, it's a rescue story. Uh, the Bible isn't interested in simply telling you to 
straighten up your life, to, to try and be like that particular person, to get in line. No, instead the Bible does something very different. The Bible tells a story. It tells a story that actually draws us into the story. such a great story that, that we get consumed in it. We get captivated by the main character. We get captivated by this guy called Jesus. And when that happens, you actually want to start living for him, don't you? See, when you see the story clearly, when you start to believe it, when you get what it means that Jesus left his throne of grace to come and die on that cross for us, then you actually get to know the person who spoke these words. You actually begin to trust him. So you actually begin to start trusting his word. When you see how much he loves you, when you see how much he forgives you, when you see how great he is, then, I think, you'll actually do what the psalmist does. He'll read the Bible and say, that revives my soul. That makes my heart rejoice. And what you'll find is that as you fall in love with Jesus, the main character, this book about him will actually become more precious than gold, more wonderful than silver. And you'll start to live a life of praise for him. I want to pray for us. If you've got any questions, feel free to ask them. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come come tonight looking at your word, thinking about how it came to be. And Father, I just want to just pray that all these questions about historicity, that we would be able to deal with them, deal with them well, but ultimately that we won't get entangled with them and that we would be able to see through them and see you clearly, see who you are, that you're a God who loves us and you sent your Son to rescue us. Amen.